Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. I want to. I'm going to hold Carl to his promise that it's going to warm up. Last week was a toughie. This week, Carl, you're on record, son. This week's going to be one we can move around a little bit. It's good to see you all. <clears throat> Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. We've discussed those two uh, last week when we were together, but he continues with four more uh, points that he wants them to quit hashing over and over and over and uh, go on to perfection. It's the doctrine of baptisms. There is also the laying on of hands. There is a resurrection of the dead. And of course, the last one, eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. God permits, so this is what we'll do. Uh, this is what he wants us to do. I don't know what's the matter. I'm not talking to my doodad over there. Except every now and then. There he goes. Uh, first of all, let's think for a moment about the doctrine of baptisms. Uh, there's several things I can see where they would have discussed amongst themselves and uh, opponents to the gospel. Such would have been the washings of uh, the Jewish system. They would have wanted to liken those washings, which were very many, uh, under baptism. You're using water for the purpose of cleansing, yada, yada, yada. So what's the difference? You need to do the the washings as well. This would be uh, debated at the time, I'm, I'm sure. And then they would discuss things like the baptism of John, the baptism of Jesus. Uh, what's the difference? It appears from looking at it that both were doing the exact same thing, but they weren't. There was a difference between the two works of these men, and this would have to be uh, made clear. What's the difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism? And, of course, this is something that you would lay the foundation with, explain to people uh, what's what and why it's that way. Then Holy Spirit baptism would come up, no doubt. Uh, what exactly is Holy Spirit baptism? And uh, they would point out that there were two instances where you see uh, people immersed in the Holy Spirit. That was in Acts chapter 2 and again in Acts chapter 10, one for the Jew, the other for the Gentile. And then you'd explain uh, why uh, Peter uh, was present in both cases, why these people received the Holy Spirit, uh, indicating that they were approved of God, of course. But there was another problem, and that was this. Uh, in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, the Lord commanded men to uh, baptize people in water. This was something that men would do. But when it came to Holy Spirit baptism, Men had nothing to do with it. Uh, notice, for example, um, what uh, John said in Matthew 3 and 11. Uh, he said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, that is the Lord, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Men baptized men for the remission of sins, but the Holy Spirit alone could baptize people in the Holy Spirit. 
This was done without the laying on of human hands. Humans were involved in water baptism, but they were not involved in Holy Spirit baptism. That would be a question people would have, and of course it would be debated. And our author is saying, learn it, accept it, and move on. Uh, about baptism, a lot would be discussed. The candidate, who qualifies to be baptized? It's not everybody, it's certain people. Uh, what must people do? What must they be like in order to be baptized? Uh, we can't baptize someone just because they say they want to be baptized. We've had people before that we were not allowed to baptize. I remember one time we had a woman. Uh, uh, she, I don't know. She sold herself. And she was here one night and she wanted to be baptized. One day, rather. She wanted to be baptized and uh, she told me what her sins were and I asked her if she was going to stop that occupation. And uh, she said, no, I can't. That's how I make my living. But I still want to be baptized. Well, we didn't baptize her because she wouldn't repent of her sins. Uh, everybody's not qualified to be baptized. Who is? This would be up for discussion. What is the element of baptism? Of course, that's water. The mode of baptism, I don't know if they would really debate that back then like we do today. The mode of baptism was immersion. That was the language. Uh, they would say baptizo, what meant they would translate immersion. Today it's translated dip, pour, sprinkle, immersion. But the Greek word baptizo, at least in the first century, meant immersion. So there really wasn't a question over that. But the purpose of baptism, what is the purpose of it? Well, the purpose of it is for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38, Mark 16.15.16. So uh, these things, no doubt, would have been discussed as well. Then there's the baptism of suffering that would come up. What exactly is baptism of suffering? Jesus said to his disciples, James and John, and their mama, you do not know what you asked. They wanted to be on his right hand, his left hand. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? The cup meant the, the portion of life that I'm fixing to go through. Are you willing to endure that? And are you willing to be baptized, immersed? Remember the word immersed. That's what is in their minds. Are you willing to be immersed with the immersion that I am immersed with? Are you willing to go through what I'm going to go through? And of course, they weren't ready. They thought they were, but they weren't ready. But he's talking about a period of suffering. You're going to have to suffer if you are my right and left hand guys. You're going to have to suffer alongside of me. Are you willing to do that? And the answer was no. So that would have to be explained. What does baptism of suffering mean? I don't understand. And then, of course, there's a baptism of fire. Once again, we go back to Matthew 3 and 11. He will baptize you, John said, with fire. Fire, of course, is the eternal fire. Jesus is the one who will sentence people to the eternal fire, being the judge of uh, all the world. When the time comes for sentencing, he will be the one that sentences people either to heaven or to hell. So he will baptize, he will immerse people in fire one day. And the fire under consideration is he'll be the judge of all the world. So these are different baptisms that come up in the Bible that would have to be discussed so people would understand. He said, leave these ABCs. You gotta get off, this is simple stuff. You know, you heard it, you learned it, now lay it down, let it go. 
leave the ABCs and go on to perfection. Today, our brethren, even, our brethren, Cecil Hook is one of our brothers, preacher in the churches of Christ. Uh, he said baptism can be immersion, sprinkling, or pouring. That's what he teaches. A lot of uh, churches today, this is what they practice. Churches of Christ I'm speaking of, of course, uh, mostly down in Texas, but uh, they practice sprinkling or pouring. Some of our brethren are still wrangling over this same thing. The Hebrews author told them 2,000 years ago, get off the dime and go on to perfection. 2,000 years later, we're still arguing over the same stuff. Somebody wasn't listening very well. Carol Osborne, another one of our brothers, he said it is irrelevant whether one is immersed for the remission of sins or because of the remission of sins. You take some time to think about it, there's a world of difference. Two different things entirely. And In one case, you're baptized because your sins were removed. In other words, your sins are removed, and because your sins have been removed, you are immersed in water. If you flip it the other way, a person is immersed in water in order to have his sins removed. Irrelevant? I think not. They're entirely two different things. But some of our brethren teach this. Some churches of Christ uh, practice it either way. Uh, they're very liberal, uh, and they're very far off center. So uh, you always want to keep these things in mind. Uh, we got our own chair of problems in the churches of Christ. Uh, there is no baptism of fire, some of our brothers. Some of them are Edward Fudge, Eflagard Smith, Stephen Clark Gold, Dyrell Collins, and the late Homer Haley. Haley, they all say that there is no lake of fire. There is no hell, okay? Uh, Jesus said there was an eternal fire, and you see the references there below it. He's the one that taught us about the hell of fire. Uh, we wouldn't really know anything at all about it, except he's the one that taught. Every time it's mentioned in the New T Testament, he's the one that said it, except for one time when James referred to it. But other than that, he's the one that mentioned it every time. We know what we know about the hell of fire because our Lord is the one who taught us all about the hell of fire. Jesus said such existed. Some of our brethren today are saying, oh, no, no. God wouldn't create a hell of fire. God wouldn't sentence people to a devil's hell for all eternity. God is love. God is good. God is kind. God is long-suffering. He's forgiving. He's merciful. God would not sentence people to a devil's hell. Well, he said he would. That's all I know. He said he would. And when he says he's going to do something or not do something, I'm inclined to believe him. I don't think he ever tells a lie. I believe he always tells the truth. <clears throat> Who will you believe? These brethren these men that put on britches every morning, or the one who sits on the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. Who will you believe? I don't have a problem figuring that one out. I know who I believe. Brethren need to leave the ABCs and go on to perfection. The advice given then is valid even today, unfortunately. Leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection when it comes to the laying on of hands. We need to know what this is about so we can put it to bed and go on about our business. For example, uh, Jesus laid hands on children. Why did he do that? Well, the same reason we would. He laid his hands on them and he, he prayed with them. You know, we, we do it uh, ourselves even now. It was uh, a tradition 
customary amongst the Jews. Sometimes the laying on of hands is associated with some healing miracles. Not all healing miracles, but once in a while, the Lord or others laid hands on people. But most of the time, they didn't lay hands on people. I don't know what the purpose of it was. I know that they did it. Maybe it was to make sure that those who were seeing it understood that this was done by the power of God as it worked through this particular individual. I don't know. But uh, I do know that sometimes they laid hands on people and healed them. And I also know that most of the time they did not lay hands on people. And then they laid hands on people when it came to the gifts of the Spirit, imparting those gifts. Uh, in order to, the apostles received the gifts of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the Holy Spirit. They were immersed in the Holy Spirit and they received 12 gifts that the Holy Spirit gave unto men. Now, the apostles could, if they so chose, the apostles could impart some of these gifts, usually only one or two, some of these gifts on another individual. But in order for them to do that, the apostle had to put his hands on this person. And I suppose he prayed that he would receive gifts that would be um, uh, necessary for this man and wherever it is he worships. I, I'm not exactly sure how that was done, but I do know that in order for these gifts to be imparted, an apostle had to lay hands on you. And if he did, and if the Holy Spirit was in agreement, this person would receive the gifts that you ask for. Okay, without an apostle, there was no impartation of gifts. There had to be the laying on of an apostle's hands. And that light goes off big time. What happens when there's no more apostles? What happens when they all die? About 96 AD, John the apostle, the last living apostle, is about 96 years old. I, I would suppose he died not long after that. There was nobody around, no apostle around to lay hands on people. How could that be? Well, maybe that meant that there would be no more gifts. Maybe that meant that because the New Testament had been written, that no gifts would, no, would longer be necessary. And these gifts would be done away with naturally. When all the apostles had passed away, then the gifts would have passed with them. I think that seems logical. And, well, also, it's what the scriptures teach. So we know that to be the case. And then uh, sometimes they laid hands on people, outward sign of approval for men assigned to certain work. Uh, such happened to uh, Paul and Barnabas and then Paul and Silas. They were being commissioned for their uh, campaigns and before they left Antioch of Syria, the elders <clears throat> laid their hands on them, prayed with them, and then they went about their mission tour. The same thing can happen today. The elders might lay hands on someone and uh, pray with them and then send them on their way. It's a, it's a prayer to the Father for the safety and success of the people imparting on this particular work. Okay, there's no miracles that are transmitted to them. It's just brothers praying for brothers. Uh, all of these things uh, we see in the scriptures. Uh, but we do not see uh, the laying on of hands uh, 
exclusively for the healing of people. That's what some say today, that uh, God doesn't want this person sick. He doesn't want anybody to be sick. And therefore, they lay their hands on them, and they pray, or they smack them, or whatever it is they do. And then the person is healed of whatever their problem might be. Uh, You'll not find that in the scriptures. Uh, That's what men have concocted since. This is what you'll find in the scriptures with regards to laying on of hands. Today, some claim to possess spiritual gifts, miraculously healed by divine power. The reason being, as I said, the Lord didn't want people to be sick. First question you should ask if the Lord didn't want people to be sick, why are there sick people? If God doesn't want people to be sick, why are there sick people? If Jesus didn't want people to be sick, why didn't he just heal the whole world? He could have done it. He was God. If he could walk on water, if he could be raised from the dead, he could have healed every sick person on earth with just one request of the Father. If that's what he wanted. No, it's not what he wanted. Suffering, pain, obstacles, they come in handy for us. They help us to work out our salvation. These, these obstacles uh, keep us uh, from becoming too proud. Paul, it was, it was hard for Paul to get puffed up because of all the works that he performed, given the fact that I think uh, he could barely see. He had a thorn in the flesh. And no matter what Paul might have thought of Paul because of all of his great accomplishments, if there's one thing Paul remembered is that he was just a man. And there was nothing he could do to heal himself of his uh, malady. That was his uh, cup in life. Suffering plays a key role in our salvation. Why would the Lord take away all suffering? It doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to make sense. Unless, of course, you don't understand what the Lord's global purpose is. And that is the salvation of man. If we have to hurt if we have to suffer with pain, if our back drives us insane, well, that's part of it. It's working out our salvation, and we should take it as such. Rather than complaining to God, maybe we should praise him for helping us work out our salvation. But you've got to understand it before you can do that. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 20, The apostles went out and preached everywhere. This is what they were told to do. Into all the world, preaching the gospel. Well, the Lord went with them. He was working with them. He had been with them when he was in the flesh. But now that he's no longer in the flesh, he was still with them. He was working with them. He was helping them. What was he doing? He was confirming their word. They were preaching the gospel, and Jesus was right there confirming their word. And how did he do it? Through the accompanying signs, the miraculous works that they did. The apostles said, I'm a representative of Jesus Christ. Nobody believes him. Who are you? You're just a Jew. You came out of Galilee. I'm not going to listen to no Jew come out of Galilee. And then all of a sudden, he heals people who are sick. He can, he can restore arm that's been removed, severed. He could raise the dead from the grave. Now, now you got his attention. People are going to listen to you if you pack that kind of power. And that's why they healed the sick and did the things they did. So that when they opened their mouths and spoke the words of God, 
people knew these men were speaking by the power of God. It wasn't about God didn't want anybody to be sick. He could have fixed it. No, he wanted people to see his disciples working works that could only have been worked by the power of Almighty God. And they served their purpose well. Our author wanted people to understand that and put it to bed. You know what it was all about. Let it go. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, we're told that the gospel was confirmed by us, the apostles, the inspired authors, speakers, penmen. The gospel was confirmed by, to us by those who heard Jesus preach. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. God bore witness to these various speakers. The idea that these gifts existed because God didn't want anybody sick is wrong. It's just wrong. Uh, it wasn't the intention of God to eradicate human suffering. He could do that if he wanted to. He's God. He can do anything he wants to do. He's God. But that's not what he wanted to do, and that's why he did not do it. He wanted these people to know that these men speaking were speaking for him. The purpose of the gifts, Mark 16 and 20, was to confirm the word spoken. The purpose of the gift, Hebrews 2, 4, was that he would bear witness to the gift that these men were speaking for God. They weren't a bunch of nuts. They had been commissioned by God to proclaim the gospel and the gifts were their witness. Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection when it comes to the resurrection of the dead. We need to understand the resurrection of the dead, he said, and then let us go on to perfection. The resurrection of the dead is fairly simple. There's a timeline here. Uh, some say the resurrection of the dead is a New Testament dogma teaching. That's not true. And I want to show you that uh, right here. The cross is uh, symbolizing uh, the switch from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But what I want to show you is that in the Old Testament, men were looking for a resurrection of the dead. For example, <laughs> can't get my thing to work. For example, in Job 19:26, Job said, "After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God." Then once again, Hebrews 11:19, speaking of Abraham, Abraham concluded that God was able to raise his son Isaac up, even from the dead. Abraham was satisfied that if he killed Isaac, that God could raise him back to life once again. <clears throat> In Deuteronomy 32, 39, Moses speaking for the Lord said, I kill and then I make alive. I can put him down and I can raise him up. Then again, in Daniel chapter 12, verse two, Daniel said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some of them to everlasting life and some of them to shame and everlasting contempt. They knew there was a day coming in which the dead would be raised from the dead 
that they would live again. They didn't know much more than that, but they knew that. They didn't understand the details of anything like you and I do, but they understood that much. It wasn't a New Testament doctrine, though it was taught in the New Testament. For example, think of what our Lord said in John 5, 28 and 9. Do not marvel at this, the fact that the living would be changed by the word of God. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, the Lord's voice. <clears throat> and they shall come forth. Whoa. Did you do something? I don't know. Anyway, let's move forward. The resurrection of the dead is one of the most important events, if not the most important event in the history of humankind. Jesus uh, being raised from the dead was evidence proof that you and I would also be raised from the dead as he said he was. There's coming a day, uh, maybe we'll be alive, maybe we'll be dead. I do not know. If we're alive, our bodies are going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies are going to be changed. This mortal body must become an immortal body. And then the spirit will live, of course, in this immortal body. If we are dead, the body will come back from the earth. The spirit will come back from the world of Hades. They will be reunited to meet the Lord in the air. There will be a judgment that will occur. There will be a sentencing that will occur. And all of these things are going to happen on the last day. On the last day, these events will take place. That ain't me. Man, this thing's haunted or something. You know you're making me look bad, don't you? <laughs> I should say you're making me look worse. Okay, where are we? Resurrection of the dead. It's gone again. I've probably been better off to what without this thing. Okay, the Sadducees denied the resurrection. Uh, they didn't believe uh, there was going to be a resurrection of the dead, and Jesus told them why they didn't believe. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, he said, you are mistaken. You are mistaken in your belief that there will be no resurrection of the dead. Why? Not knowing the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures. If you knew the scriptures, you would know that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. But because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. That's reason number one. Reason number two. <laughs> Hmm. 
results, huh? You do not know the power of God. These were the two problems they had. One, ignorance of the scriptures. Number two, ignorance of the power of God Almighty. I think uh, for a lot of us, the biggest problem might be uh, ignorance of the power of God. We wonder how God could do the things he do. He does. Is it possible for God to, to judge all people from Adam to the end of time? Is it possible for God to uh, destroy the creation he created? Is it possible for God to uh, sentence part of the population to heaven and the other part of the population to a devil's hell? Can God do all these fantastic things that we're told that God is going to do? One thing uh, I look back on a long time ago, uh, if I believe that God created everything that exists in six days, and I do, I don't think there's anything that God could do in keeping with his nature that would surprise me. Anyone that could do what God, the very fact that you and I are here, now we're getting into some deep thinking now, the very fact that you and I are here, it implies there must be a reason. Figure out a reason. The reason for our being. The fact that we are here and we know we're aging implies that one day we're going to die. Well, why will we die? Will that be the end of all things? And if that is the end of all things, why did we ever live in the first place? There are so many questions that come up when you deny the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead solves a lot of mysteries. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, you opened up a can of worms, you just can't close. Because there's too many questions that are going to go unanswered. The Bible teaches the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead makes sense. It makes life make sense. And it's what's taught in the scriptures. It gives life a purpose. We have a reason for being here. We're more than a, a, a school teacher or, a, or an engineer. We're more than a taxi cab driver. We're more than a, than a husband or a father, a son or a daughter, an American citizen. We're more than somebody who lives 60, 70, 80 years and then dies and the world forgets we were ever here in the first place. There's more to life, much, much, much more to life. We're too sophisticated. We're too incredible. We're, we're, we're too wonderfully amazing to be here without a purpose. It just doesn't make sense. And I can't believe it. It's just too incredible to believe. I believe in the Lord and what he said about life beyond the grave let us go on to eternal judgment eternal judgment believe it or not is even questioned today unfortunately by some of our own brethren it's questioned today i don't know if i should still call them our brethren they don't call us brother <laughs> this thing does stuff like i don't know what's the matter with it uh, it is an eternal judgment because the divine decree will not be altered or amended in any way. The judgment is already eternal because it won't be altered. 
before judgment, and it won't be altered after judgment. What's been established is the rule by which God will judge all people. Will never be altered. That makes it an eternal judgment. Never changing, never ending, never ever going away. <laughs> the great judgment is the eternal judgment. There's no repentance. There is no forgiveness. There is judgment. And then, of course, there will be sentencing. I'm tired of this thing. Uh, one day, one day, one day, for some, that day is like a second away. There are those who have already go into the Hadean realm. There's no time in the Hadean world. You and I, we have to wait for days and weeks and months and years to go by before that day will get here. But the people who have gone into the Hadean world, my father, for example, who passed on about five years ago, for me, it's been like 10 years. For him, it's been like a second, second and a half because there's no time. Have you ever noticed that when you go to sleep at night, have you ever woke up in the morning and thought, golly, I just went to bed. Have you got out of the bed and felt like you just closed your eyes and you slept for eight hours? You know, eight hours went by like a breath. It's gone, I want some more sleep. It seems like time stopped and you got no sleep. I think that's the way eternity's gonna be because we're not conscious of time e either because there is no time. Once we die, go over the river of death, time is over. And all that's before us is eternity. And it passes very quickly. I used to think about people languishing in the Hadean world waiting for us to arrive, waiting to see us once again. You know, your mama or your daddy who died years and years ago, you think, man, they've been there all this time waiting for me to show up. It's been like 20 years, and they're still waiting for me to show up. It ain't been like 20 years to them. It's been a breath. That's all, it's been a breath. Because there is no time. One day, However, you and I, whether we're alive when Jesus comes or we have passed, it makes no difference really. One day, we will stand before Jesus in the judgment after the resurrection takes place. When we stand there, we're going to understand what's going on because we understand the judgment, right? We know why all people are gathered together. The people who are on the, the Lord's left, these are the people that's going to lose their souls. The people who are gathered on the Lord's right, these are the people who are going to be saved. Here we are on the day of judgment, gazillions of people there. And we know, we know why we're there. And you, you look to the left. 
hey, that's my son over there. He can't be over there. He's supposed to be on the right. I don't want him to be on the left. I want him to be on the right. And you might start over there to drag him over to the right, but you can't drag him because you won't let you. He's on the left for a reason. He lost his soul. Maybe what you didn't even realize is you're going to be on the left too. Or worse, maybe you'll be on the right. And you'll watch your son be on the left. And then you remember that you didn't invest much time in that child's salvation. Oh, you were good. You fed them, you housed them, you clothed them. You went to their ball games with them. But you never took time to talk to them about the Lord and about things that mattered. In the judgment, we know what's going to happen. And we know what's coming. And we're either going to be numbered with the redeemed or we're going to be numbered with those who are lost. God has given us today so that we can consider these things, these very, very important things. And we can adjust our life if we need to. We can adjust our life. We can determine in our hearts that we're going to follow the Lord And we're going to give all of our might to it. Because when that day comes, and it will come, I don't want to see my descendants on the wrong side of the Lord. And I don't want to see myself on the wrong side of the Lord. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is a very, very real possibility. So I'll continue to do what I do for their sake as well as for the sake of those I might be able to affect. I beg you, I beg you with all my heart don't take it lightly don't take it lightly everything's at stake now we're going to get off the first principles next week we're going to continue our walk toward perfection.